Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Coming up. This is the SNP desperately trying to look like it knows what it's doing in terms of infection control. There's not much evidence that says that having stricter controls in Scotland actually is making much difference. We have to be a little bit brave. We have to be quite bold in how we change the the, the way in which people are dealt with uh, by the police. There's something about how we put resources in to divert people out of criminal activity, but for those who are repeat offenders who are dangerous to society. How do they get dealt with in particular? Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Very warm welcome to my Herald podcast. On the show today, we'll take a really close look at the latest plans to counter coronavirus, this hideous plague that continues to blight us all. Should COVID passports be extended? That's the, the, the big issue. But first, the issue which prompted sharp exchanges between the First Minister and Douglas Ross at Holyrood and that issue is the early release of prisoners. The, the the controversy was prompted primarily by an absolutely appalling case, the, the rape and murder of 67-year-old Esther Brown in her Glasgow home. Jason Graham was jailed for at least 19 years for the crimes, but when he committed the offences, he was being monitored as a registered sex offender after his release from jail for raping a woman in 2013. So he was, if you like, out on licence. I'm joined by four MSPs and delighted to have them join me now. Audrey Nicholl for the SNP, Mardu Fraser for the Conservatives, Labour, Sarah Boyack, and the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Alex Cole-Hamilton. Welcome all. Um, Mardu Fraser, let me come to you first on this this business of the earlier release. Your your colleague Douglas Ross, you're saying, basically approved that the system in Scotland was helping the, the, the offenders, the criminals, rather than the victims. He's going too far there, is he not? No, no, he's not, Brian. I mean, the facts facts speak for themselves. This was an absolutely horrific case. This this individual, Jason Graham, was a registered sex offender. He had 23 previous convictions, um, including one for rape. He was released early, supposedly under supervision, and committed this uh, appalling rape and murder of of a pensioner. Uh, I think that in itself shows there's something far wrong with the system when you know, members of the public are at risk um, in that way. Now, you know, the First Minister promised back in 2015 that the system of automatic error release would be brought to an end. Uh, it, is, it is still happening. In fact, even more worryingly, we've just seen published by the Scottish Government a, a new consultation paper which is talking about potentially extending it further to allow some uh, prisoners to be allowed out after serving only one yeah, first. It's, about, it's allowing some prisoners. It's not automatic early release, and the early release of those who were serving more than four years, what, what automatic early release was ended in those circumstances, and Nicola Sturgeon pointed out your lot didn't vote for that. Yeah, so this is, this is about extending uh, releasing prisoners potentially yes. one third of their sentence. And I appreciate it's for, it's for slightly shorter term prisoners. There, yes. but there's, there's, two, there's two issues here. There's an issue about public safety. So yes. There's an issue about those who committed serious crimes who might be at risk to the public being released back into society. But there's another important issue, and that's about rehabilitation. Because one of the purposes of prison should be to rehabilitate offenders. And all the evidence we have tells us is that the shorter the sentence, the harder it is to progress rehabilitation. And to have a system that is all about reducing 
the, the length of sentence and getting people out the door as quickly as possible means there is less opportunity to work with prisoners to rehabilitate them. And therefore, the recidivist rate, the rate of reoffending, is highest amongst those with the shortest sentencing. And that's why this is really worrying. Let's bring in Alex Cole Hamilton. What, what do you make of this, the, the, the situation? Does this one case prove that the, the system was broken, or would would you still defend uh, release in, in, in some circumstances, or would you defend automatic early release, perhaps? Well, firstly, Alex. Brian, uh, th- this case is utterly de- devastating. Yeah. It's deplorable. It's disgusting. Um, I, and it, but it is also, I, I think, very seductive to um, change legislation or, or change what we're planning to do based on, on one case, uh, and we should always just take a breath before that happens. That said, um, I I think this does suggest there is something fundamentally wrong in um, the way we do prison in this country. And liberals have been saying this for generations. We need penal reform. Um, uh, Let's start at brass tacks. We need to talk about what um, prison is actually there for. At the moment, unfortunately, it is for warehousing people who are by and large a risk to society. Just warehousing them. We don't do anything with them. And Murdo uh-huh. Fraser is right. I mean, he and I just... Well, at, least you keep, at least you keep them off the streets and you stop them tormenting people, don't you? And you well, stop them raping pensioners. You, uh, I, I, I mean, there, there is certainly a, a public good in that. Um, but yeah. at the same time, if you're not doing anything else with them, they're freely mixing, they're learning from each other, and the, you get into the so-called universities of crime aspect of what happens when you just uh-huh. the, prison, the prison estate as a warehouse. Now, Murdo Fraser and I disagree about a lot when it comes to criminal justice in this country, but he and I absolutely agree on the um, the nature of short-term sentencing. The fact that if you're being sent to Barlini or to Sochten for three months, six months, it's of no value to you or to society whatsoever. You cannot uh-huh. have a meaningful intervention in somebody's life if you're only then going to uh, release them, sometimes into the arms of a waiting police officer who has okay. enough evidence to arrest you for another crime, uh, just to put you back in through the system again. No Rehabilitation, um, getting people skilled up and, and moved into other aspects of life. Is okay, okay. Audrey Nickel, the accusation is that your party, the SNP, the, the, the party that, that, that fought the by far the, the the major part of the Scottish government that that party is soft on crime and is and is and is soft on hardened criminals. Well, b- before I answer that, Brian, I mean I, I would just like to concur with the comments yeah. that Alex and and Murdo have made about the the, the circumstances of this case. It's, it's yeah. truly tragic, and and I, you know, my heart goes out to everybody affected by that. But I, I disagree with the this sort of premise that we're we're soft on crime. It, it, it's it, it, for, for me, it, and I take on board the, the points that Murdo has said about the, the sort of two key issues around public safety yeah. and rehabilitation, where the, the justice system exists to make sure that those who are offending and in you know in terms of the seriousness of the, their crime they are punished accordingly and you know i've I've spent 31 years in as a police officer and by and large my view is that 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 on the whole when you think about the numbers who are processed through the courts um that that works very well um i i don't I, i think i'm not actually quite sure what soft on crime means but the, the situation yeah. that we're in at the moment in Scotland, and bearing in mind that this has been exacerbated by, by COVID, yeah. is that we've got prisons full of individuals 
who shouldn't be there. So I think overall the courts take a proportionate approach to offending and the reality is that we have to be a little bit brave, we have to be quite bold in how we change the... So the, the way in which people are dealt with uh, by the you, police you, you would, because at the moment it's it needs change and that's actually okay. something that we've been looking at within the criminal justice committee. Okay, I'm, I'm keen to bring in Sarah Boyce, but I'll bring in Sarah, Sarah now. I see Alec and, and Mardo keen to come in as well. Sarah, what, what, what's the balance to be struck here? And there is a balance to be struck between protecting the public and and perhaps the arguments of, of rehabilitation between punishment, frankly punishing for the crime, and again trying to re reduce reoffending. What's your take on the balance, Sarah? Yeah, well, the thing that struck me from the First Minister's response was her comment that Scotland has the highest rate of people in prison in Western yeah. Europe. And that really struck me because what we're talking about here is should people be in prison and should people be allowed out of prison when they've committed serious crimes, when they're repeat criminals, when they're a danger either to people they know or to wider society. So there's a, a massive issue about resources here and yeah, the fundamental issue about how people get into prison. How do we divert people from prison? I'm just thinking about Edinburgh in the last couple of years through the pandemic. We've got yeah. young people that are assaulting buses and bus drivers. It's just yeah. kind of unknown to us. There's something about how we put resources in to divert people out of criminal activity. But for those who are repeat offenders, who are dangerous to society, how do they get dealt with in particular? And I think that case raises both of those issues. And it, there's a politics here of priority and how resources yeah. are used. Murdo than Alex. Murdo, you were keen to come in. Sure. I just wanted to come in on something Audrey Nichols said. Now, Audrey yeah. makes a really good point when she mentioned the issue of COVID, because we have got an acute um, population issue in prison right now, which is caused by the large number of prisoners on remand awaiting trial, because this is a whole to be got people who um, normally have been, you know, up, up backlog running, you know, six months, a year, perhaps longer in some cases, uh, as people are sitting on remand in prison, where, you know, they have to be because, you know, they are um, accused of very serious offences and they're on remand pending, pending uh, their trial coming up. Now, there's no easy and uh, quick solution to that, but the one thing we shouldn't do in response to that, in my view, is start releasing people from prison who shouldn't be out of prison just because there's a crisis in terms of prison numbers. Are, are, you, are, you, are you saying, Mado, are you saying you could have other cases? I mean, this is a truly hideous case, the case of Esther, Esther Brown, but are you saying we could have others, maybe not as bad, but comparable? No, what I'm saying is I think I think there is a danger, if you look at this purely from the point of view of numbers, of saying because the prison population is bursting at the seams, the way we reduce it is letting more people out inappropriately, and that would be entirely the wrong thing to do. Instead, if we have to look at temporary additional capacity uh, in the prison system, perhaps by bringing in, I don't know, you know, uh, former army bases or whatever it might be, uh, then our prison you know, I think we have to be prepared to do that because the alternative is a greater risk to public safety. Alex Cole-Hamilton and then Audrey. Alex Cole-Hamilton. I wanted to cover, I think, the issue of remand as well. And, and Sarah's quite right. I mean, for the First Minister to say 
um, to wear the badge of uh, the fact that we have the most incarcerated population in Western Europe as some kind of uh, plaudit is, is wrong. I mean, that's nothing. Oh, I don't think she was saying it was a plaudit. She was saying that was a problem. She was arguing well, that was a, a case for reviewing the system. But I've also heard some of her contemporaries sort of use it as a bat to dispel the okay. suggestion that the SNP is soft on crime. Well, it's she was pointing out that we have the low crime rate as well. Perhaps, perhaps that proves that prison works. Well, it, it's not something we should be proud of. It's something we need to drive down. It is the catalyst for policies like early release because our prison estate is overcrowded. Murdo is quite right about the problem we have in terms of remand, and that's uh, down to the fact the court service is woefully under-resourced. We have uh, a real problem uh, with legal aid in this country and, and um, cases backing up. We've got It's led to a phenomenon where you have people who are accused of a crime who are falsely pleading guilty for that crime because they know uh, they'll get less time in jail as a result of the sentence they get for pleading guilty than they wow. were waiting for the case to come to trial on remand. Wow. That is absolutely perverse when it comes to a healthy justice system in our country. Audrey, Audrey, is it your experience that the public just want folk, you know, you from a police background, is it your experience that the public just want folk put in the slammer and they, they don't really want to hear the arguments about about rehabilitation? Maybe they don't. They, they, they just want maybe 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 society just wants a break from folk for for, for a bit. You know, maybe there's a let, let me put the, the the devil's advocate case on the other side as well. Uh, no, no, I, I, I don't believe that. I, I've no. never, ever sort of sensed that from, from the, the public at all. What, what they do want is they want people to be accountable for whatever crime or offence they have committed. Now, uh-huh. I, I think most people who have been victims of crime um, you know, have have different feelings uh, as they move forward from that experience. And um, But I really don't think that, that, that they have this sort of um, one-size-fits-all, you need to get locked up and, and, and that's it. I, I think there are some situations clearly where it is absolutely appropriate that a custodial sentence is, is what is... Um, is, is issued by, by the court. But I think people are, by and large... So proportionate enough in the way they respond to, to being uh, a victim of crime. And, and if, I, if I may, Brian, just come in on yes, a point that Murdo made, um, yeah. and that relates to numbers in, in prison. And um, I think we're all agreed that there are that the, the prison estate is bursting at the seams, and something needs to be done. But yeah. I, I, I don't um, I don't acknowledge the, the comments that, that Murdo made about the. It wasn't random release of prisoners, but just releasing them for the sake of getting numbers down. There is no way that that, that would be remotely feasible. And okay. rather, and I, and I know from my own experience um, in my constituency in Aberdeen South as a member of the Aberdeen Drug Partner, sorry, the local alcohol drug partnership, that there is hugely robust assessment of the suitability of prisoners when they are being brought forward for early release. Okay. And it just, you know, it's far too risky just to say, well, we, we need to get our prison population down, so we'll just release up 10 tomorrow and 10 the next day. Okay, okay. Mar- 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 you were keen to come back in on that. You were, you were name-checked there. Yeah, I mean, just just briefly, I accept the general premise of what Audrey has just said, and she's absolutely right. But of course, Scottish ministers do have extraordinary powers at the moment, thanks to the coronavirus acts, 
during these governors in the event that there's a, a COVID outbreak in, in the prison. So, you know, these could be used in extremists. So I think we just need to be aware that that power does exist. Okay. Can I just, uh, can I just say... Yeah, yeah, please. Oh, Alec, please, yeah. Alec, maybe Alec and, Alec and Sarah. Sarah, you haven't had much of a, a say on this one. Alec, then Sarah. Yeah, please. Well, you did write in. Um, but no, I think that there's a really important subtext to what uh, Murdo has just said about the powers of the coronavirus act. Um, yeah. There is a suggestion right now in the corridors of power in the SNP government that they that should the be SNP choose to keep yeah. those powers in perpetuity, yeah. irrespective yeah. of the status of the pandemic or otherwise. Um, it's not been widely reported, but it is, I think, a dangerous move for our democracy. It's kicking around, yeah. Um, and, and as such, you know, that's why Liberal Democrats, I know we're not alone in opposing it, but we will oppose it vociferously. Okay, thanks, thanks. Sarah, what, what, what's, what's your take on this? Where, where, where do you think we're heading on this? Are we are we heading down the line of fur, further release under the consultation that, that's currently taking place? I think we've got to have a look at our criminal justice system because okay. the points that have been made about wanting to keep people safe couldn't be more important now given the experiences folk are going through. But there is also something about how the criminal justice system is absolutely creaking at the seams. The lawyers I've spoken yeah. to over the last few weeks, they are struggling. We had the issue uh, last week in, in Parliament about the Edinburgh Bar. There are issues that need to be looked at in terms of how well the system is processing people who are accused of crime and the lack of funding for legal aid and there are some systemic issues that have got to be addressed that sit behind the head that the appalling headlines that we've had in the last 24 hours appalling appalling seriously describes it uh, folks i'm going to move on thank you very much for your con- contribution there i think a very good dis- discussion a topic that will undoubtedly uh, return to on this program and elsewhere because of that consultation that's taking place but let me move us on to to covid uh, i think the you'll remember the, the covid passports or you know the, the certification that was brought in uh, to prove vaccination they were introduced for nightclubs and now the first minister is consulting right now consulting with business as we speak on whether to extend those to pubs cinemas theaters and the like business is absolutely furious uh, generically furious gavin stevenson from the Scottish Licensed Trade Association told MSPs in committee this morning that the impact of this, were it to happen, would be little short of devastating. Uh, it, it sounds as if it's going to happen, Audrey Nicholl, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, there's, there's consultation, but there's talk about using either um, uh, vaccination or, or proof of, of uh, tests, etc. It, it sounds like it's consultation, but it sounds like it's happening and happening from early next month. Is that your interpretation of what we're hearing? Rather, I my, my sense of, of, of what's going on here is is more um, being driven by the, um, the sort of just kind of the, the sustained numbers um, yeah. of cases uh, and obviously yeah. hospital uh, admissions. Um, I know Alex is shaking his head, but the fact sure is, is that cases are remaining stubbornly high. And, you know, COVID doesn't really bother about, um, you know, what, what we what we are putting in place to to, to tackle it, and I I I, I I'm pleased to see that the the decisions ultimately made around the sort of extension or the um, changes of the vaccination scheme are, are being informed um, in time, and, 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 and the decisions aren't just being made um, quickly and without a sort of basis on, on which they're. Uh, that, that, that they're made. So I, 
I, it is a really, really difficult job. And in particular, in particular, as we're coming towards the festive season, when many businesses who have been most impacted by uh, by the uh, by COVID, uh, namely hospitality and retail, um, potentially will, uh, you know, if depending on what the decision is, will, will continue to, to feel the, the impact of that. So okay. I would rather see... I, I, I would rather see an informed decision taken um, at the point that they feel that's appropriate to make it. Uh, and, and it is, okay. we, we okay. just need to wait and see what that will be. Uh, Alec, Alec, why the shake of the head? I'm not shaking my head because I'm denying there's a surge in cases. I'm coming to you from my kitchen because I am isolating right now because a close oh. family member has COVID. I'm shaking my head because we have had COVID ID cards, COVID passports in place for a month, and they have had no tangible impact on infection rates. Whereas England, which don't have COVID ID cards, are seeing a sustained decrease in infection control. This is the SNP desperately trying to look like it knows what it's doing in terms of infection control. If ever there were proof that you would needed that there are better alternatives to vaccine passports then it can be found at cop 26 cop 26 delegates were exempted from needing covid id cards uh-huh. they presented a positive or, or sorry they presented a negative lateral flow negative test, test every day yeah. or admission that is superior to covid id cards in two ways firstly it confirms your covid status on any given day rather than your vaccine status that's important because venues can then discern who is sick and who is well rather than who is vaccinated and who is not far more important in terms of infection control and secondly and i think perhaps most importantly um, the, the covid um, the lateral flow test just provides a snapshot of your health on any given day it doesn't require anyone to do a deep dive into your medical records or to share part of your medical record with somebody who is not your clinician um, and gets around that very... And you're, uh, and you're very unhappy about that particular aspect, aren't you? I am. It is an assault on your right to medical privacy, Brian. And, uh-huh. and I think um, it has come against no, no discernible scientific uh, backdrop or evidential base. The Scottish Human Rights Commission have expressed concern that that evidential base does not exist. And we are seeing that in the fact that um, we are not uh, seeing a downturn in, in viral transmission. Now, mm-hmm. let me be clear. I am a massive vaccine evangelist i i think the yeah. vaccines are our way out of this pandemic everyone yes. who has can get one should get one they don't yes. stop you catching covid and they do, certainly don't stop you passing it on so we can't guarantee that people going into venues with vaccine id cards are are well and that they're not passing on covid Mother Fraser, what, what about those complaints from, from business? They're talking about it, devastating, apocalyptic, the whole bit. On the committee this morning, John Mason, MSP, SNP member, said that to a certain extent he thought that business was crying wolf. What, what do you make of that? Yes, he did say that, and he was he was shot down pretty quickly by the, the business representatives who were there, there in the room. The, the, the Scottish Licence Trade Association and Gavin Stevenson, who you, you referenced earlier, Brian, actually did a survey uh, of members, I think they, they surveyed 200 of their members who had been impacted by the vaccine passport scheme as it currently exists, and they reported a decline in trade of between 20 and 40 percent that since yeah. it had been introduced, directly attributable to vaccine passports. Now, um, that's serious enough, but if you're talking about extending the scheme to other venues, that creates a whole range of additional problems. So if you take the example of a very small pub or cafe, um, 
Well, the only way the scheme works is if you have somebody on the door checking yes. people before they enter, yes. and they would then have to employ additional staff. And you know, in the current environment, even if they could afford that, they can't find anyone to do that job. There's another issue too for hospitality venues. You know, we were talking about panto season coming up, so you know, loads of families like mine have booked tickets to the to the panto already. Um, now, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated; it doesn't affect me. My, my children would be exempt, but there'll be people who are currently unvaccinated who book panto tickets. There's no time to get vaccinated uh, twice and get a certificate before Christmas. So yeah. if you get your panto tickets, you're going to demand a refund. So theatres are going to be complaining. If you're planning a Christmas works night out and you've already bought your tickets and you're not being vaccinated, then you're going to demand a refund. And all yeah, of these issues... You could, you could say, the First Minister would say, you could say, you know, them's the breaks. You know, that, that's what happens when you have a global pandemic that is killing millions around around the world. She also argued with regard to, to the licensed trade that perhaps people were staying away from pubs and restaurants because of the absence of, of the sort of controls that she's she's talking about, about bringing in, that it was happening anyway. What do you make of that one? There's no evidence, and I agree with the point Alec made earlier, that there is no evidence that vaccine passports are actually delivering on the two objectives that were set out for them. The first objective was they would prevent the spread of yeah. uh, COVID. Uh, and yet, as we see, there was an article about, in The Lancet about this just uh, uh, the other day, making the point that there is no evidence that uh, being vaccinated makes it less likely that you will spread COVID. And secondly, there's no evidence that the introduction of vaccine passports has encouraged the take-up of vaccines amongst vaccine-hesitant groups. Um, well, it's, 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 it's Scotland and elsewhere in the UK, so that could be an argument that it, that it is working. Well, you, you look at the trajectory of, of figures, there's no evidence of that. In fact, there is contrary evidence. And if you look at uh, what's been told to the COVID committee by social scientists like uh, Professor Stephen Riker at St Andrews University, he's really concerned that the introduction of vaccine passport, passports actually entrenches uh, vaccine hesitancy. So groups already suspicious of vaccines are more likely to become resistant to getting vaccinated because if you whatever yeah okay Sarah Bullock, you've, you've been keen to get it Sarah thanks very much Brian yes I mean I think there's there's still a need to focus on getting getting everybody vaccinated just, not just quite a lot of us it's got to be at the absolute maximum I think test and trace there's still an issue about making sure that that follow it follow-up is because it can take days for people to get contacted by which point if they have been if they have been impacted they could have infected quite a lot of people and I suppose the other thing is we've been saying all along is um, and particularly in the context of vaccine passports lateral flow tests actually testing whether people have got the, va the virus is absolutely critical. Are people carrying that, that virus around? And in terms of how vaccine passports work, I actually asked the First Minister about real-life experience of constituents who've been yes. in other parts of the UK, have been vaccinated, but it does not show on the Scottish vaccine passport. The complexity of it, yeah. the First Minister couldn't actually give me a straight answer in the chamber. People yeah, from England who've been vaccinated Vaccinated. And I had a constituent who actually had been vaccinated in Northern Ireland was told she'd have to go down the foreign route. Now, that was from the actual NHS helpline. So there's What's something that we talk about yeah. the knowledge here that's been yeah. passed on that's inaccurate yeah. to people. Picking up on, on the lateral flow test, let's talk about that. I mean, the suggestion now is that it could be it could be vaccination. The option would be to have 
lateral flow tests or, or even that you have to have both to get a, a degree of, of um, registration. What, what do you make about that, Sarah Boy? Would, would, would extending it, extending it to, to, to other venues and perhaps extending the scope of the requirement, would that work or is that making, is that adding to the complexity that you're talking about there, Sarah? I, I think there's something about how we as individuals actually act so there's something about wearing a mask in a crowded space if you don't have the underlying health issue that makes it difficult yeah. for you. There's something about it routinely. If you have to go into work, routinely taking that lateral flow test. And if you yeah. are going out and about, it, it's partly to protect yourself in terms of wearing a mask, but it's also to protect your friends and your family from being infected because, you know, it's out there. All of us will now have friends and family who've really been badly impacted. And that's on a good yes. day. There are people yes. who've lost yes. their lives. Yes. There's something about winning people over, bringing them with us, and just making people think about the reality for them if you are not so, taking part of that process. So, so to be clear, are you in favour of the vaccine passports to use the shorthand or not? Do you believe they're effective or not? Oh, well, we have been criticising them for weeks about okay. their lack of effectiveness, about how hospitality, for example, are meant to operate them. And, and just the last example I gave you, people not able to have a vaccine yeah. passport, even though they've been vaccinated. The system is clearly not yeah, working. Yeah, okay. That's why we've been going for okay. test and trace and lateral flow tests, much more pragmatic on. and much more direct in terms of limiting people transferring the disease to each other. Audrey Nicol, it doesn't work. It's too much of a guddle. Well, well, I, I, I think it's, I mean, it's in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it's relatively early days. And, and I'm not for one minute saying that the, the system is, is perfect. It would be extremely naive of me to do that. But I want to pick up on, um, on Sarah's points. I think she's absolutely spot on in terms of the comments that she's made about how we behave uh, in, in many ways. So we acknowledge yeah. that there are, that there are challenges with the passport scheme. It is one of many uh, options in the toolbox, if you like. But I think more importantly, it comes back to what Sarah's alluded to, is about our own behaviour. It's about making sure we get our vaccines. It's about social distancing. Yes. It's about um, wearing our masks, cleaning our hands. It's just such basic stuff. And, you know, go going back to the point that, that, that Murdo made about evidence, that, that that's absolutely right. But I don't know if it would be... You know, there, there's sometimes, although you can say, well, there, there is no evidence of something, you can also say that, well, there is no evidence that it hasn't, you know, no. there hasn't been some... Even worse, yeah. ...some bearing. You, we we that, just that don't is not, that. that. is not right. Alec Cole-Hamilton, Alec. Yeah, Alec Cole. I mentioned COP26 earlier, Brian, and, and we know that the delegates were not uh, required to have a vaccine passport and were not asked for one. They were asked for a negative LFT. And we know from, uh, statistically speaking, the First Minister said herself that they had created the safest environment possible, that you were three times less likely to get COVID, to test positive for COVID if you were a delegate at that event than anyone else in the general population. Yeah, but you can't replicate that across Scotland on a daily day basis, can you? You can't do that. You can't replicate that. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, the, the government quoted that as a, as a justification for how safe the event was. They said it's the safest possible environment. Well, if it, they recognise yeah. that as the safest possible environment, they need to build a system around LFT testing, which is far less intrusive in terms of accessing your medical data, sharing it with somebody who is not your clinician, than a, a vaccine passport is, evidence of uh, 
past treatment um, is a very slippery slope to go down. I think we have all the evidence we need, Brian, in a halfway house, some suggestion that you could have either or will actually remove entirely the first reason that the first minister introduced that, which is to drive up vaccine uptake. Because if people who are vaccine hesitant have an option to produce yeah. an LFT instead, then they what, what's the incentive for them to go and get well, vaccinated? The first minister, said, first minister argued that in the early days that the, the drive was to get vaccination up, but then perhaps you've perhaps you've achieved that to some extent, and Scotland does have the highest rate so, in the UK. So, so now you can move on to the other element. Well, let's abandon the vaccine passports then. If we've achieved okay. the goal, if we've, if we've achieved the summit okay. of our expectations around the vaccines, then let's let's dispense with them because they're not keeping people safe. As I said at the start, LFTs give a snapshot of your COVID status on the day, not your vaccine status. And that allows venues to discern who is sick and who is well and keep okay. people safe on that basis. Just knowing well, that everybody around you is vaccinated doesn't mean they don't have COVID. Does make a hoop. Murder Fraser, you were keen to come in and then Sarah. Murder, then Sarah. Murder first. Yeah, two, 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 two things briefly. First of all, on lateral flow tests, I think bringing in lateral flow tests alongside vaccine passports as an alternative would be an improvement because it would remove, at the very least, the human rights aspect of people objecting to, to uh, having to provide vaccine certification. But it's not perfect because it would still present the problems for business that they still have to have people on the door checking entry and that, that would still be a burden. So it would be better, but it's not a perfect solution. On, I mean, Audrey made the point about evidence. I think, I think there's, a, there's a risk in all of this, right, that um, people ad adopt the something must be done approach, right? Yeah. So we have a problem with COVID. Yeah. something must be done. We don't know whether it works or not, but we must try something. It's, it, I, what I find really difficult to understand in all this, and this is an issue which on the COVID recovery committee, you know, we, we ask our scientific advisors, why is it that, you know, in Scotland, we are um, much more restrictive uh, than happens south of the border. So we have to have compulsory wearing a face mask, we have vaccine passports, we don't have these in England. And yet the case rates in England right now are pretty much identical uh, on the population share compared to what we have in Scotland. So you know, there's not much evidence that says that having stricter controls in Scotland actually is making much difference. So, you know, it's, it's actually really difficult to understand what are the right things to do. Thanks, Murray. First of all, Sarah Boyk, you were keen to come in. Sarah. Thanks, Brian. I, I just wanted to come back to the, the vaccine issue. There's, it's partly about getting everyone to get the vaccine and to follow the advice of the scientists about what age and to enable young people to have that access. But it's also yeah. about the boosters, the booster vaccine, because there's something about making sure that you're, um, you're still safe, because... If you have had your two jabs and then you get your booster jab, you're less likely to be seriously ill. And that yeah. is a bonus for our NHS. It's a bonus for the individual. So rolling out the vaccine is not something we can take our feet off the accelerator on. And I'm, I suppose the issue is as MSPs, we get people who have problems, but I am still getting constituents who cannot get access to their boosters. I had somebody yeah. last week who was aged, uh, very vulnerable. Um, a week later... 
they had actually got the information. But trying to rearrange um, uh, where you're getting your vaccine, if you're given somewhere that is miles away, you're yes. only the person without a car. There are some real practical issues here about making it as accessible as possible. So even the boosters have to be treated as seriously as the initial rollout. And that's about resource and it's about making it practical for people. And I, I just think we are going to be here for some time to yeah. keep people safe. I mean, I, yeah. I'm a bit of a nerd. I look at the stats every day and I'm genuinely shocked that Edinburgh's rates are going up. Whereas Glasgow's rates, which we all thought we'd go up after COP26, are actually relatively stable. So yes, there's something about local information, local access to vaccines and, and local access to flu boosters. It's actually all of that preventative health stuff and, and our lifestyles. And when you meet people from Southeast Asia who wear masks, which we used to think was rather odd, yeah. I've talked to people during COP, they had the experience of SARS. So there's something about learning from dangerous outbreaks in the past and informing really our public you, health you, approach you, going you forward. See, you see Asian students in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and they, they, they were routinely wearing masks long before we, we heard of, of COVID-19. Alec Hamilton, the First Minister, wasn't she wasn't saying that the system of, again, to use the shorthand, COVID passports was ideal, but she was saying it was a, a, a weapon in the armoury against COVID. And she was pointing out that around Europe, you know, Germany is, is declaring a, a, a fourth wave crisis. Austria is having to virtually, you know, put, put a curfew upon people who don't of, of, of the, the vaccines. This is still a huge challenge, a huge challenge. And perhaps this is one huge. of the, the weapons in the armory, to, to use the phrase. Alec, what do you make? It is a huge challenge, of course, and I, I'm not in any way denying that. Um, but I point, Brian, to an event that took place in Cornwall in the summer. It was called Boardmasters, a big surfing event. Um, uh, that was, uh, uh, by its own choice, it was a vaccine passported event. Everyone who had to, who was attending, had to present evidence that they'd had both shots. Five thousand people still caught COVID at that event, um, yeah. and that just goes to show that whilst it's all it maybe all well and good to know that everyone around you is vaccinated, it doesn't keep you safe from the virus. In fact. There is a suggestion that actually it lulls people into a false sense of security. Ah, They're in a, okay. a stadium okay. or in a venue where they, they know everyone else is vaccinated. Maybe perhaps people dispense with social distancing. Maybe they lose the face mask. Um, but it, it does give you a false sense that you have a protection that doesn't exist. Vaccines protect you from harm. They do not protect you from transmission. How, how about that, Audrey, Audrey Nicola? A false sense of security, perhaps. That, that That's a... That's a, a potential source of concern, isn't it? I, I take the point that Alex is making, and and and, and you know it's it, it's not not new, but I think it's one that we've just got we have to be mindful of. I think there will be, especially perhaps younger people, um, who are a wee bit more. You know, I've got a nineteen-year-old son, and. Um, you know, he took quite a lot of persuading to get his vaccine in the first place. Why, so, why I, was that? Why? Let me pick you up. What, what what was the reason? What was his objection to getting the vaccine? Um, I don't think he objected to getting the vaccine. I think he's, he's just a fit and healthy young guy and getting vaccines isn't much of a priority for him. No. Um, okay. what, what, did, uh, what did matter was the fact that uh, he needed to get it, um, it, it, it in respect of his employment. Okay. But I, I, so I, I, you know, I think it's a, fair, it's a very reasonable point to make and it's one that we, we need to be mindful of. And I think Sarah's point about the importance of getting um, our boost is really important as well. Um, I heard Professor um, Shridhar on the on the news the other day 
talking about research, current research that um, shows that um, two vaccines plus your booster gives you a really high level of, of protection. So encouraging people uh, to, to, to get their booster uh, over and above their their, their vaccine. So I, I, I think that there are lots of dynamics here and I think strong messages encouraging people to get that primary protection is really, really fundamental because we're all agreed that okay. COVID is not going away and, and we are going to have to make some adaptations in our lives to live with it and not leave it behind. I'm going to ask about that in a minute, but Marta Fraser, you were keen to come in on the current debate, please. Yeah, just just to agree with what Audrey said about the importance of boosters, and that's you know a very significant issue. Um, but we do have an issue, and, and this was raised at First Minister's questions today by my colleague Brian Whittle, because people going on now to try and book booster appointments are in some cases finding it's mid late yeah, January before they can get an appointment. And, and there's another dimension to this because what NHS Scotland has done for the over fifty age group, which some of us might be in, Brian, um, is that. Um, they're tied the, the booster to the flu vaccine. Now, if that means you're not getting your flu jab until late January, in actual fact, the, the peak season for flu may well have passed by the time you're getting your flu jab. I think that is a big concern because people could actually be at risk because they're not getting their flu jab until later than they should otherwise have it. Thanks, Mara. Let, let me move you on. Mara, you, you mentioned there, I'm going to move on to, to a, a final topic, a final topic related to, to COVID. And, and I think Audrey Nicholl mentioned it, you know, the idea that we, we, we have to live with it to some extent. Now, the First Minister was very reluctant to use that phrase in, in earlier days. It sounded a bit like, you know, almost surrendering to, to, to the virus. And I understand why she was concerned and, and, and reluctant to, to use it. But she's, she's now saying if you... Uh, if, if we have to live with it, to, to some extent, we, we have to get used to the consequences of it. What, what's the, let's start with Sarah Boyack. Sarah, what, what, what is, you, you said you study the stats every day and the stats are still pretty challenging to say the least. Is there an exit route? Is there an end game for COVID or do we just simply have to get used to it, perhaps living with it at a, at a diminished level? Well, talking to people from Southeast Asia at COP, it was a kind of in the, the sidelines of talking about climate change, talk to people from Taiwan, Bangladesh. Um, and one of the things that we, we and, 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 uh, and South Africa as well, one of the things we talked about was the distribution of vaccines across the world. Yeah. Because until everyone is safe, yeah. we are not yes. safe. And we've had different variants of vaccines, you know, the Delta variant, which is absolutely horrific. Um, the UK made a promise, other well-developed countries made a promise of access to vaccines for low-income countries into the global south. Yes. That has just not been fulfilled at all. Um, now, I put a member's motion down and it got about 50% of Parliament signed up to the principle. Um, and the last time I checked, it was just over 10% of the vaccines that had been promised were distributed. Now, one of the things the UK did, which, you know, actually give credit, there was the Oxford University AstraZeneca link up, which was using yes. private sector, sorry, public sector investment, working with a university to actually create a vaccine that was going to work. There's something about enabling 
the intellectual property rights of how vaccines are produced to be able to be spread to those developing countries who've uh -huh. got health services that make our health service look happy. Now, we know our health service yeah. is on the break. Yeah. It's impossible to imagine some of those countries where people are dying at a, a le level we cannot even imagine. So there's yes. a there's a fairness issue, but it's also a self-interested issue for us, I yes. think. We yes. live in a global world. I, I am probably not alone being desperate to go abroad on holiday. I've right. been very lucky. I've been to Broughty Ferry. I've been to Glasgow. I went to London and Brighton. Um, that doesn't cut it for me. I'm very lucky I can afford to go abroad. But seriously, we can't go back to that kind of lifestyle, it, whether it's a train for, or a plane for, go to travel good. abroad. How do we do that yeah. when we've got a vaccine that is still ramping, sorry, a virus that is still rampaging around the world and is potentially developing? So there's something about a, a global justice aspect here that yeah. I think we should be stepping up to the mark on. And I'm disappointed not to have seen action on it thus far. Very good point. I mean, for goodness sake, you've, you've been to the ferry and you're still keen to go on foreign trips. I don't know. Dear, oh dear. You're I will go back to the ferry. I loved it. Wonderful <laughs> place. Glorious little putting green and, a lot of, and, and, and fabulous, fabulous ice cream. And, and one, and one or two little, little pubs that I, I'm told... I'm told people visit them occasionally. I admit, not, not, not me, not me. But, 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 but Fraser, is there an exit route? Is there an end game? Or do we just have to get used to it again, perhaps at a diminished level? I think we're just going to have to, to learn to live with this. And I'm sorry to say, I think yeah. that the, the booster program is just the start of it. I suspect we'll all be getting annual jabs um, uh, just to see off COVID. Um, it will probably continue to come in waves in different forms. It's continually uh, mutating as a virus, so we'll see different, different variants coming, and we'll have to learn to live with it. And um, uh, it just means, I think, things like you know, hand washing, uh, face mask wearing in certain circumstances probably is with us for the long term, and that's not a great prospect. I think that's really awesome. One scientist suggested to me that the way these things sometimes happen is they mutate into a, a form that no longer makes us ill. It, it, it spreads but no longer makes us ill, and that apparently has happened to some, some other uh, uh, viruses. Alec Cole-Hamilton, same question. Do we live with it? What, what, what do we do? What's the end? Oh, are we, certainly the exit route? we certainly live with it, Brian. Um, there are still strains of the 2019 Spanish flu pandemic at large oh. around the world. And that's, yeah. and that's just a factor of these viruses. It's very difficult to globally eradicate a viral strain, especially yeah. one that is as sticky and as busy as COVID is. Yeah. Um, but that said, I mean, the, the only reason that we're seeing surges again um, in the UK and in other parts of the world is because of Delta. And Delta um, represents the first aspect of virus or vaccine escape where the vaccines we have are great at stopping harm, but not great at stopping transmission. They, they were great at stopping transmission of the original variants, but we just yeah. haven't got the tech yet to catch up. That will change. We will have boosters which have uh, the tech behind which, which is yeah. geared up to deal with Delta. So it will make life a lot easier, but we, it will be an arms race with the variants as they come. And I just <sighs> a final note to say, I absolutely agree that we have a social justice imperative to, um, as Sarah said, to, to recognise our international obligations to developing nations and bring everyone uh -huh. close, because uh -huh. everyone is safe, nobody is safe. Audrey, a brief word from you, the exit strategy of the end game. I mean, I, I agree with all the points that have been made, and I think um, you know Sarah's not the only nerd in the call. I've spent the summer walking my dog and listening to 
Chatham House podcasts on the development of the COVID vaccine, which were absolutely fascinating. But that global aspect and that global response is, is really key. Um, the, the Western world has a big part to play in that. And ultimately, that will be you know, that that will impact on to what extent we are going to have to live with it. But I think we are for quite some time to come. Thanks all. Thanks all, Audrey, Alex, Murdo, Sarah. Thanks very much indeed. Very, very good advice there. You want to spend your holidays, spend it in the ferry, which is very, very close to the cradle of civilization, which is, of course, Tannadice Park. From me, Brian Taylor, doodle in the new. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant, unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 